Psalm 29. Sometimes you have to be careful what you ask for with God, right? Patience, for example, it's one of those things you have to be careful because God likes to put people in your life that you have to be patient with to grow you in patience. And I hear a lot of people say, man, I just, I wish, I wish God would just speak to me. I just, I wish I could hear God's voice. And Psalm 29 is going to remind us that we need to be careful what we ask for. Because so many of us struggle with the silence of God. I was thinking about a song by Andrew Peterson um, called The Silence of God, and he says this, It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not, when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. Just beautiful words to just kind of put into feeling and emotion and song that feeling of, of not hearing God's voice. And, and as hard as that is for us, in so many ways, it is God's grace. Psalm 29 is a picture of God speaking and what that looks like. And so we're going to read this passage together as we do. We'll put it up on the screen. Starting in verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Saron like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Amen. So in this passage, David is describing the power and the judgment of the voice of the Lord. And he does this by using a reference to a storm. Now, I've told you guys in the past, I like to kind of chronologically study a passage and see how things have developed over time. And a lot of people ask me, they're like, you know, well, why do you keep reading modern stuff? Can't we just read the old stuff? And, and that would be good. But this is one of those examples of where Archaeology and us learning more about other cultures that surrounded Israel at the time 
comes in really helpful because most of the early church fathers looked at this passage in almost a superstitious way. And what I mean by that is they looked at storms and they, they thought what, what's happening in this passage is that God is, is equating, or, or the, the people are, uh, excuse me, the writer of Psalms is equating God with major weather events, right? And that's, that wouldn't be nothing new. If, if you look at the Native Americans, they, they often talked about their gods in that kind of way, the God of rain, right? The God of thunder. You see that throughout time. And it's a very simplistic way of understanding and, and expressing uh, this idea of a higher power or deity in weather. But that's not what's happening here in this passage. That, that metaphor is being used, but it's being used for a very specific reason. And that's what I want to kind of dig into this morning and look at. David begins in this passage with a call for worship. David repeats the word ascribe three times, specifically so that we know who, what, and why this call to worship is issued. Since we, we know a storm is coming in verses 1 and 2, these are something like a hurricane warning, right? This is something for us in, in Florida we're very used to. Uh, we have radar and, and all this technology and hurricane hunter planes that fly into these storms. And they give us these warnings letting us know, hey, the storm is coming. And I'm so thankful, I hope you're thankful, that we live in a time in which we're not surprised by these things, right? We can stock up and get the water ready and, and be ready to ride out a hurricane. Much in the same way, David is, is kind of sounding a warning here that there is a storm coming. Listen to the call before the storm. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now what's interesting here is that David is issuing this call not to people. That, that's not who David's target audience is here. David's tar target audience is the spiritual beings to gods. The phrase heavenly beings is literally the sons of gods. And sometimes in, in some versions of your Bibles, it might be translated as the sons of mighty. But the original reference here is to the pagan gods surrounding Israel. All of the gods that these people worshipped, these, these idols that they would worship by Israel's neighbor. David calls these foreign gods to bow down and worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. David is putting these foreign gods in their place. Now, for those of you who have read your Old Testament, can you think of a time where an idol bowed down and worshipped the God of Israel, Yahweh. When the prophet Samuel was a boy, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and they placed it in the temple of their God, right? That God's name was Dagon. There was a, a statue of Dagon there in the temple, and when they came back in the morning after capturing the ark and having it there in the temple, the idol had fallen down on its face before the ark of the Lord. 
And the people come in and they're like, this is crazy. What's going on? Maybe it fell, right? Maybe, maybe something happened, right? So we're going to prop it back up. And they came back the next morning and the statue had fallen again. But this time, the heads and the hands were completely broken off and laying on the ground. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. David is, is, is picturing this picture of these foreign gods, these foreign idols, and he's telling all of them to worship the one true God of Israel. The gods of the nations cannot stand before Yahweh, the God of Israel. And although David is specifically calling these idols to worship, these foreign gods to worship the God of Yahweh, he's also calling Israel to worship God. And he's calling us this morning to worship God. Because like the people in Israel, if you go back and read the Old Testament time and time again, what were they tempted to do? What did they fall away to? To worshiping idols. They had the one true living God. And yet time after time, they would fall back into the worship of idols. And, and this is something that we struggle with too. We serve the one true and living God. And yet so many times we chase after things that just feed our flesh. And David is reminding Israel as he's calling out to these foreign gods to recognize the greatness and the overwhelming majesty of God. So by urging these gods to worship Yahweh, David is speaking to the wayward and idolatrous people in Israel. The background of Israel's idolatry is reinforced by the language and the form that we see in this psalm. See, this is why I was saying archaeology and, and further study and why we have to keep learning and keep digging is important. Because when you just read this psalm, it's very easy to do like, I mean, even people like Spurgeon and go, okay, this is about storms. And, and not understand what's really happening in this psalm. The way this psalm is written is very similar to ancient Canaanite poems about their gods. Baal is often described as riding on the clouds. He is pictured with a lightning bolt in his hand. And David is using the language and forms of Canaanite worship to show that Yahweh is far superior than all of these other gods that they are worshiping. And so David does something clever. He turns their own poetry against them. Right? One, one theologian commenting about this passage said this, The general storm image of battle has been subtly transformed into a taunt-like psalm. The praise of the Lord by virtue of being expressed in the language of imagery associated with the Canaanite weather god taunts the weak deities of the, un, of the defeated foes, namely the Canaanites. Thus, the poet has deliberately utilized Canaanite-type language and imagery in order to emphasize the Lord's strength and victory in contrast to the weakness of Baal. See, what he's doing 
is he's taking their poetry, their language. Now, again, our early church fathers, they didn't have the rich archaeology and, and, and history that we have of that surrounding region. But now as we go back and we examine all of these writings from this same time period, we look at this psalm in a different light and we see this isn't just about God being the God of a storm. This, this is a taunt. <laughs> this is like David throwing down the gauntlet to all of these other false gods and saying, look, there is no God like our God. It, this, this would be like, let me, let me put it in our terms. This would be like taking a top five pop song and taking the music and rewriting the lyrics so that it brings glory to God, right? He's, he, they're grabbing the culture, what the culture is doing and saying, but rather than letting it bring glory to those false gods, he's changing the words, he's changing the language so that the proper God, the God of Israel, is glorified. Over the life of the church, this has been done time and time again, right? We, we go out into the culture and, and we take the, the, the music of the culture, we take different aspects of the culture, and we redirect it. And, and we help to sanctify it and help point people back to Jesus. Missionaries do this all the time. They go into a foreign country. The really good missionaries go into a foreign country, they look around and they say, where, where can I connect the God of the Bible to what these people already do? And then how can I help redirect this false worship into genuine worship. And this is part of, of our calling as we are going out and we are re, being remade, right? God is taking our old hearts of stone and making them into new hearts of flesh. He's recreating us. And then we go out into the world and we begin to be agents of recreation in the world around us. And, and we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There, there are things out there that we can claim for God's glory and God's goodness that can begin to point people back to the one true and living God. Exactly like David is doing in this psalm. He's speaking to Israel by addressing these foreign gods in the style of Canaanite poetry. But what does he call them to do? They must announce the glory and strength of Yahweh in verse 1. And the word glory here means to be heavy. And, and, and by extension of that heaviness, there is an importance there. Glory is that asset which makes people or individual or even objects impressive to us. Now what did... The false gods want. They wanted glory. They, they wanted the focus to be on them. They wanted people to build statues for them. Don't we do the same thing? Still to this day? Only for us, many of us, the idolatry is not some foreign god, it's ourselves. We, we want to leave monuments and statues behind about our greatness. But David reminds us that all the glory needs 
to go to God. God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. With this storm on the horizon, David warns them to acknowledge that Yahweh alone is impressive and important and weighty and glorious. See, when the Lord appears in power and glory, these pagan gods can only recognize his majesty and bow down in worship of him. Why? Well, it's because of the power of the storm, right? David sets the stage for God to reveal his majesty and his greatness in the power of a storm. And David describes this overwhelming glory that that comes in the form of like a hurricane. You, You see God raging like a powerful, powerful hurricane. Spurgeon writes of this psalm, The psalm is meant to express the glory of God as heard in the pealing thunder and seen in a tornado. The the verses march to the tune of thunderbolts. This sets the stage for God to reveal his greatness and power. David writes in verses 3 through 9, almost like a meteorologist tracking the storm, right? He's tracking this hurricane that's coming, and there's this picture here of a hurricane sweeping in from either the Atlantic or the Gulf, whichever way, with devastating power. It's coming from the sea. Verses 3 through 4 says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So, So it's like this picture of you know, we're tracking this storm that they start over the Atlantic or even as far back as Africa and they make their way over or some start their way in south and they come up through the Gulf of Mexico. And so the first aspect of this storm is this growing storm is just gathering steam and power the same way a hurricane does over those warm waters of the Atlantic or the Gulf. It just gets more and more powerful. And then the storm makes landfall. The storm makes landfall here in the coast of Lebanon in the north. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Siron like a a young wild ox in verses 5 through 6. Now the cedars of Lebanon were known throughout the ancient Near East as being some of the most spectacular trees in that whole area. Right? These were the trees that were brought in to build the temple of God. But as tall as these trees are, as grand as these trees are, when they meet the voice of God, they snap like a matchstick. In verse 6, when David uses that word Siron, it's a Sidonian name for Mount Hermon. And so what David here is referring to, because in Lebanon we have um, Mount Lebanon and we got Mount Hermon. When, when God speaks, his voice shakes these majestic mountains. 
He's not only more powerful and, and glorious than the chaos of the ocean, right? That's, that's what in this culture the sea represented was, was chaos. And, and God speaks to the chaos and just controls that chaos. You remember Jesus doing the same thing on the Sea of Galilee, right? His disciples are scared and he just speaks. And the chaos is calmed. But, but it's not just that he's more powerful than that. His voice shakes the mountains. It, it literally just, just makes them, them want to run around. David, again, here is bringing the idea of a spiritual victory. You see, the forests of Lebanon were considered sacred to the Mesopotamian gods. And when God's voice breaks the cedar, he, he violates their sacred forest and shows that he has power to snap the trees of that forest. The Canaanites believed that Mount Lebanon and Mount Hermon were the home of the gods. That, that these two mountains is where their gods lived. Are, are you picking up on the taunting going on here? Like there's way more than this just being about a storm. This is about a spiritual victory that God is doing. And, and, and David is saying, these two houses where you think your God lives, when this God, the God of Yahweh, when he speaks, those mountains shake and quake in fear. And they skip like calves. Solid mountains leaping like calves. I don't know if you've ever been around and watched little baby calves and the way they just kind of scatter when you try to chase them. That's the picture that David is saying that when our God comes, when the God of Israel arrives, all of these false gods that you think have power, they're just running like baby calves terrified for their lives. The Lord is displaying his, goal, his glory once again over the idols of the Canaanites. And then finally, the storm moves over the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. David seems to be watching the storm come in off the sea to the north of Israel and then devastate the forest. And then it travels inland to what's now Syria. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever been outside when lightning strikes? I, I, was, I was at a, a Gator game not too long ago, and uh, a friend of mine happened to be there as well. And, and it's not uncommon for us to have weather delays. We, we are the lightning capital of the world, right? But normally, it's a radar weather delay. In other words, the radar picked up lightning somewhere. And you're sitting there in the stadium going, it looks fine to us. Like, why can't we keep playing football? But, you know, it's within a certain amount of miles. Well, on this day, I got a, I got a picture my buddy took. We all felt that bolt of lightning, so we were totally cool with the weather delay for that. I mean, we were, we were all scrambling inside as fast as we could. And that wasn't the first one. You can already kind of see the top stands had kind of, those people had emptied even faster. 
Um, because lightning was popping all around us. And, and I, again, I don't know if you've ever been out in a lightning storm, and you know, it, it, it's an awesome display and, and, and just the power. And that's what David is, is hearkening us here to. And, and it gets us to the place that, that all we can do is cry out glory, right? David is saying when this storm hits, it's so powerful, it's so magnificent, God is so awesome that all we can do is cry out glory. When we read this, this psalm, we're supposed to say, wow. We, we are supposed to be in awe of God's power. God reveals his impressive and overwhelming power as his lightning splits the trees of the forest and his thunder shakes the mountains. In Amos 1-2, it says, The Lord roars from Zion. See, so many people have this picture of this tame God that they can just kind of lead around on a leash and get him to do whatever they want them to do. That, that's not the God of the Bible. Israel needed to be reminded of this awesome picture of God so that they wouldn't turn to the idols of their neighbors. As so many of us often fall into doing as well. We, we become so used to talking about God as our friend that sometimes we forget just how truly fearsome he is. The God who saves us rules with uncontrolled power and has the ability to destroy. He hates sin and evil. He, he is saving up wrath for his enemies. This storm, it devastated the foreign nations. It, it humiliated their gods. And one day the Lord will devastate those who do not know him. And he will humiliate all of the things that we try to worship instead of him. Now, I've told you guys this before, but always pay attention in a passage when something is repeated. So like a scribe is repeated in the beginning, but what's repeated more is the phrase, the voice of the Lord. It's the most repeated phrase in this psalm. And for an Israelite, this sevenfold repetition of God's voice would have reminded them of God's repeated power at creation. When God spoke everything that we see into existence. Six times in Genesis it says, and God said. One for each day of creation. God spoke the entire universe. Everything we know, everything we understand, everything we see, he just spoke it into existence. Genesis 1 shows us God's creative power that comes with his voice. Psalm 29 shows us the destructive power that can come with that same voice. The terrifying power of God's voice also reminds us 
It reminds me of, of the covenant that God made with the people at Mount Sinai. Do you remember how the people responded when, when God came down to give the law? Do you, do you remember? The, the people, they were, they were overwhelmed when they heard the voice of the Lord. Moses writes in Exodus 19, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Israel's experience of God's presence in Psalm 29 is very similar to that experience at Sinai, right? Fire, thunder, earthquakes, the mountain shook. But the, the experience was so overwhelming <laughs> that they begged not to hear God speak ever again. <laughs> Exodus 20, 18 and 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Right? Like, like they're recognizing how awesome and powerful God's voice is. Which gets me back to where I started this morning. Be careful what you ask for. Right? I just I want to hear God speak to me. Think about what you're saying. Because God is powerful and God is holy, and we are not. Psalm 29 also speaks judgment on the false gods of the nations. But the powerful voice of the Lord also points us forward to Jesus Christ. See, in Jesus, when, when he came, he himself was the word of God. The Apostle John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just as powerfully as God is speaking here in Psalm 29, just as, as, as glorious and as majestic as he's speaking here in Psalm 29, he spoke through Jesus Christ, just as powerfully. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. As the word of God, Jesus spoke with power in this world. We see that demonstrated all throughout the Gospels. He, he healed the sick. He calmed the sea. He cast out demons just with the command of his voice. Don't be deceived, though, into thinking that Jesus still doesn't have this destructive power we see in Psalm 29. He not only creates and heals with his word. He not only sustains the world 
with his word. He also destroys his enemies with the hurricane force of his word. In the end, Jesus will crush his enemies with his voice. Again, so many times we see that war metaphor in Revelations and we think there's going to be a battle. Folks, there will be no battle. There will be Jesus speaking the end to his enemies. John describes that in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He is literally going to speak the end to his enemies. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. The voice of the Lord's judgment will one day thunder out of the mouth of Jesus. The words that we see here, this storm we see represented in the mouth of Jesus or in the mouth of the psalm is going to come out of the mouth of Jesus and destroy his enemies. And then David ends this psalm by by showing us the eye of the storm. I don't know if you've ever really experienced the eye of a hurricane and, and, and what a surreal experience that is. But in 29 verses 10 and 11, he says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. We, we can be experiencing hours of rain, tornadoes, lightning, thunder, and then all of a sudden the eye passes over. And, and, and literally, they call it an eye wall because it's once that eye wall gets over, it's like everything calms down. And again, I, I'm thankful that we live in a time with radar and technology and we can see because you can be lulled into thinking the storm is over, it's time to go back outside, right? Only to have that eye continue to move and you, you're right back in the midst of Tornadoes, lightning, thunder, heavy rain. But, but in that moment that the eye is passing over, there, there is a peacefulness about that eye of the storm. And, and David is reminding us here, I think, that, that, that we need to remember that although this storm seems chaotic to us, God is sitting there and that his people can be at peace in the midst of this storm because he is their protector. David wants to remind us that the storm does not mean that God has lost control. Instead, he wants to remind the people of Israel and he wants to remind us that God rules over the wind, the rain, the lightning, the tornadoes, the thunder. God reveals his glory in judgment. See, the only other place that this word that we see in verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. 
The only other place that this word flood is found in the Old Testament is in the flood account of Genesis. You find it there 12 times, but you don't find it anywhere else other than this psalm. So this idea of flood is connected with judgment. David is connecting the destructive power of the storm he witnessed with the flood that came on the earth in the days of Noah. God sat in judgment on the wind, the rain, the storms of the Genesis flood just as he rules over every storm. Now this doesn't mean that a particular storm in our day is some kind of sign of God's judgment. But every violent storm reminds us that a final storm of judgment is coming. Notice what he says in verse 11. This God is the strength of his people. Who, who can compare to him? But why do we look anywhere else other than him? This God, in verse 11, brings peace to his people. He, he will not let his enemies stand forever. The storm of his judgment will bring peace as all of his enemies are ultimately defeated. One of the things I love about this picture we see in Psalm 29 of God's destructive, awesome power of judgment that rages like a storm is that he leaves his people untouched. God knows how to uproot his enemies and protect his people. Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We can trust him. His, his awesome power is, is exquisitely precise. I often joke with people when I'm out and it is lightning around us and they start running for the house. I joke with them and say, God doesn't miss. <laughs> he can get you in the house just as easily as he can get you out here. Right? Right? Be calm. Get to shelter. I'm not saying tempt the Lord thy God, right? But, but we don't have to panic. We don't have to fear because his power is exquisitely precise. We, we may lose everything in this life. We, we may lose life itself, but we will find that by God's power, we have lost nothing. Do, do you this morning know this great, untamable, uncontrollable God? He, he is indeed fearsome, but he is also good. He's good to his people, and you can trust him. As verse 11, he, he blesses his people with peace. In closing, I want to read to you the end of that song that I quoted in the beginning about the silence of God. Andrew writes this. There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky 
all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden, as silent as stone. All his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not. In the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your awesomeness. Father, I, I pray this morning that we will be reminded in some small way through this psalm just how awesome and how powerful you are, God. But Lord, I, I also want to praise you because you have the power to, to destroy all of your enemies and yet you sent your son, Jesus, the very word of God, all of this power wrapped up into human form to come and die for us. While we were still yet enemies of you, you sent your son to die for us. What an amazing display of your that we see on the cross. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, Father, that today would be the day they would confess their need, they would confess their sin, and they would turn to Jesus and to his finished work on the cross and place their faith in what you have done for us that we could not do for ourselves. Father, I pray for those of us who have put our faith and trust in you and, and, and maybe we've gotten a little lackadaisical in our view of you, Lord. That we would be reminded of your awesomeness and your power. And Lord, that would draw our hearts back to you this morning. Examine our hearts and our lives and see where we're tempted to, to worship other things other than you. And, and to confess those things and to turn back to the one true and living God of the Bible. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.